This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bhandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Welcome to the first edition of Ortho Joe, uh, which is a casual conversation between Mo Bhandari and myself, Mark Swinkowski, and we represent our organizations of Ortho Evidence and the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, and we'll be talking about uh, topics that are on our mind that have been uh, high in our conscious level this week, or perhaps uh, on a regular basis, what's new in our respective publications. So um, I think, uh, Mo, uh, that most, of, most people know about JBJS and what the history is, but many out there may not know about Ortho Evidence. So can you just... Uh, Give the audience a brief uh, thumbnail of how you started Ortho Evidence and what its goals are. Sure, absolutely. And um, well, first of all, thanks again for, for having this opportunity to chat because I think you and I do a lot of chatting off the record, so to speak, and this is going to be on the record. So we'll see how it goes, but I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, Ortho Evidence was started, now it's about eight years ago. So it's, it's funny when people say, oh, it's, it's, it's new. No, no, it's been around for eight years. And what it started out was, was just a way for me on a personal note, just to keep up with the best available evidence. So our job was in a way to filter what we felt was high quality evidence and simply that's randomized trials filtered and then, you know, shared in a way that was digestible to me and to others. And so, you know, you kind of always start with something that it works for you and hopefully others find it uh, helpful. We've expanded to, you know, adding a lot of other things. When you get a lot of content, you can start adding original content. You can start getting into podcasts and a bunch of other things like that. But the principle is that we are trying to um, help people make better decisions with data the same way I think JBJS is. JBJS is unique in that you've been around for decades and decades and have this strong history uh, of support because you've provided evidence to the world. Our job is to distill um, from JBJS and many other journals, you know, what we feel are things that matter to many people. That's kind of the nutshell. That's great. As I think, as you mentioned, everybody knows the journal, but many might think of it as the journal. But now we're six journals, including the flagship, which is over 130 years of age. But we also have some other sort of specialized uh, approach, like Essential Surgical Techniques, which is a, a, vi a video-based journal. And we have Case Connector, which attempts to link rare diseases and injuries. And we have JBJS Reviews. And we have the Journal of Orthopedics for Physicians Assistants. Uh, and uh, we're, we're really uh, in the business of innovating as far as being able to synthesize information so that people doing the real practice of orthopedic surgery uh, have an evidence source. So our, our, our missions are, are tightly linked. So the thing that's been on our mind here in Minnesota recently, and I, I, know, I know it's been on the, in Canadians' minds as well, is the, the COVID uh, pandemic. And We've had a huge spike here in the upper Midwest, and it's really filling up our ICUs and 
uh, ortho evidence as well as JBJS had a, a, a way to address the issue when it first popped up in the uh, March-April uh, range. So I wonder if you could go over for the audience how ortho evidence approached uh, assessing this whole issue. Well, let me take a step back. So by February, I don't know. I don't remember if you remember where you were in February, but mid-February, I was in Mexico, uh, literally planning my whole year. I thought, okay, I was uh, taking over as president of the Canadian Orthopedic Association, which had, you know, several thousands of, of of miles of travel all around the world. I was going to be going back and forth. We had all these things planned. I show up, get back, and March first. We keep hearing about around the world, oh, there's a, something's happened, you know, and there's this virus that's going around. And I don't even know if they had named it COVID-19 by then, but I suspect it was the coronavirus, some variant of the coronavirus. By March 11th, you know, I think that that was when the world siren, this is a, this is a global pandemic. And at that point, I'm not sure what happened with you at the journal, but for us, it was, okay, it's still going to be okay. I think we'll just keep pushing forward with our routine content. The challenge we were finding was the kind of general emails I was getting was, hey, what's your take on uh, what's happening with the virus? You know, uh, and you know, just a, a flood of questions. We weren't even addressing any of this. I said, well, like that's a big pivot for us in ortho evidence because our surgeon's really interested in learning about and really understanding coronavirus. So you may remember, Mark, that call that you and I had. I think it was, it was on a Monday or it actually may have been even on a weekend where we chatted and I said, you know, I'm getting a lot of um, uh, interest from our side on doing some sort of basic review on what is this novel SARS-CoV-2 virus. And quite frankly, at that time, I didn't know much, you know, beyond the title and what it was and I'd heard. And you had said, well, I, I mean, maybe we should do something together and let's do, let's get a rapid um, uh, review out. And you would, and you were going to build something on your end. So I'm curious what you were thinking at the time. But we, you said to us, "Can you have something to us in 48 hours?" Is what I remember. And I remember going to the team and saying, "Okay, folks, all hands on deck. Everyone's got to put something together, and we've got to work really hard." So the whole team was like 15 people, all doing little bits, trying to put this together in a in a way. And I remember at that moment thinking, "Is this the right thing to be doing?" Like in hindsight, I think it was, and for sure it was. But I'm wondering what you were thinking at that same time, because I had my version of that conversation thinking, this is kind of, in my mind, a review, a simple review of what we know to date, and hopefully this will set off a bunch of other things. And I know, watching what happened at JBGS, it did set off a lot of stuff on your end. So I'm curious what happened from your perspective on those calls. Right. Um, well, you, you put up a very personal moment. My personal moment was uh, recognizing that when I was starting to hear from our international colleagues in Singapore and out of China uh, about this disease that we had in our surgery center, a very sick uh, scrub nurse who had a bilateral whiteout of her chest X-ray and was really ill. And then I myself got a febrile illness uh, in the month of February. And I began to think by the time I was getting these comments that maybe the virus was already here in the, in the US at that same time. And as the emails began to come in uh, from, again, Singapore and China, we started to receive submissions already uh, by, the, by the beginning of March. And I recognized that uh, this was, uh, as, as it was declared a world pandemic, that this was gonna be really, really important. So, uh, and this was about the time you called uh, and we had that chat. And what we did at the journal is we established a really, really rapid review process for 
manuscripts. And the issue was, as you well know, since you've studied this, that this is not traditional research. These were small cohort series of hip fracture patients who were infected or small series of healthcare practitioners who had tested positive. What do you do? Uh, and we, we uh, were fortunate enough to have an international expert on the pandemic who was willing to review these manuscripts within 24 hours. Uh, and we were able to get our copy editing team to drop what they were doing and expedite things. And so we were very rapidly able to get up a fair amount of content. And your key article was, was one of those early manuscripts. And it was interesting at that time, because as you're writing it, um, and I suspect from your perspective, as you're reviewing stuff that's coming into you, you start realizing this is, this is very, very, very serious. Like more so than I think most of the surgeons who are communicating with us. And then you have this sense of this weight on you, truthfully, which is like, there's a lot of stuff here. So a lot of stuff here, meaning there's a lot of avenues this can go. And I think in many ways, we're underestimating what's going to happen. And our community um, needs to have something about this. So I think you decided at JBGS to probably put together um, a COVID you know, resource center roughly the same time that I think OrthoEvidence decided. And it was a very, like it, was, it wasn't even strategy at that point. It was simply a, just, you know, you, you have that feeling in your heart saying, okay, nobody really wants to hear at this point, as much as, you know, about um, the latest and greatest on, let's say, rotator cuff surgery. Why? Because all surgeries basically have been shut down. The only thing people are thinking about right now is what is the impact of, of this virus on their life, personal uh, and professional, and how do, we, how do we help them with data? And that was partly um, the result of our pitch to you about doing a second paper where we had a strong collaboration between our groups, um, looking at what, you know, what I think the WH had called an info epidemic, and we kind of called it the infodemic, um, which led to this whole, I mean, that in itself could be hours of discussion about, right. you know, what, what happened and with the aftermath of that. And I think there was a lot of good and bad that came out of this. From the editorial side, I'm curious, like, you were able to get things through to print in a time that I'm sure is unprecedented for the Journal of Bone Joint Surgery. Like, I, I don't know if COVID-19 shifted you in a way to think we have the capability of doing this and maybe, there have, and maybe there's a new way of thinking about how you're going to be, you know, doing your reviews. I'm curious from your perspective on how that happened. But from our perspective, I also realized how dangerous it is for us to be like, like real time collating and putting stuff out because every time you put something out, you couldn't take it back. It's out there now. Right. Um, and we were also thinking maybe we have to slow down a bit on our end as the people who are producing information versus those who are actually disseminating it. And I wonder how you weigh that because things were going rapid. Um, and I don't know how many papers you accepted versus how many you received, but I'd be curious to hear that. Well, we had over 300 submissions, something like 325, 330, and they're still trickling in to some degree. And we published uh, around 70, something like that. And, and we have backed way off uh, of our acceptance rate. In the beginning, we wanted to just get some information out, even though it would have never passed peer review in uh, any other time other than this extraordinary circumstance. Uh, and I already mentioned a few of the things is how do you manage the positive patient? What is the risk of the surgical team? Uh, we also had uh, manuscripts that we have recently published on what is the approach for vaccines. There, it turns out there's eight or nine different approaches to develop a vaccine. 
and tried to focus on things that were of real interest to our community. Uh, and we, we did publish a lot of cohort studies from various countries around the world. There were series published from Spain, from Italy, when they were the real hotspots from Germany, which initially did a really good job of controlling things. And also articles about how to handle the OR environment and how to handle patients in the pre and post-operative area to limit the risk of everybody involved. But um, we definitely have backed off on providing uh, information that is uh, cohort studies that is a very small series and are now focused on trying to publish only those that have longer term follow-up and have more broad applicability and would pass standard peer review uh, methodology. Uh, we, we were able to get a, a dozen or so really committed reviewers that when I sent them a manuscript to review, they would turn it around in 12 hours. Wow. Uh, and that's a tribute to them. Uh, and uh, they were from all over the country, all over the world. Uh, Ang Lee in Singapore, who was really, you know, ahead of the game in their experience, really played a big, big role in um, assessing these manuscripts. And as I mentioned, we also had a, a world-class uh, epidemiologic expert that whenever there was any sort of information that could have a generalizable interpretation, we asked uh, Mike Osterholm, who's now on the task force that uh, President-elect Biden has uh, yes. has established, and he he reviewed manuscripts for us early on. So, and and then I would give all the credit to our copy editing team that worked seven days a week, basically, many of them twenty hours a day to get these things through and, and up on the COVID, what we call the COVID-19 collection. So I, I want to, I know you've studied uh, the impact of, of having published uh, these manuscripts that have not really had, you know, outstanding experimental design or peer review. And can you just uh, give us a little more information on what you've learned? Yeah, for sure. So, so I would refer uh, anyone who's watching maybe to the link, and I suspect that we can provide the link to the JBGS paper on the infodemic that we provided. But, you know, what that was, was a quick look. You know, what astonished me, astonished me was during that 10 to 12 week period, the peak of the first wave, you know, kind of centered around March 11th, you know, mid-March, there were 1,741 papers published. Now, that's crazy to me to think 1,741 papers published. It's not that they were waiting in queue for six months. I mean, we didn't know about the virus until really like January, right? The earliest reports would have been January. So it truly was de nouveau. You're getting new papers submitted to journals and put out. Now, how many journals? 447 journals were involved in this. So they were, it was coming from everywhere in about 60 countries. And we looked at all, you know, all the, all the different quality indicators and you know you can imagine that the majority of the data as you as you rightly said was opinion because the truth of the matter is when you know nothing about something that's truly novel and as it was a novel coronavirus what history are we going to use well you're going to use experts and so we were seeing commentary after commentary and you could just start seeing the commentary to data was disproportionate and you would think okay well this wasn't happening um you know this is probably happening in a lot of maybe the you know what and we'll use impact factor impact factor you know ones and two journals no it was happening at the highest level in fact at the highest level it was happening uh, at a disproportionately greater uh, level now you might argue that maybe it's because these journals have such a you know wide uh, uh you know a readership that for them access to these you know, star potential scientists who can opine on various points, maybe it may have been the way to go. Um, 
but it's interesting, right? I mean, you, I'm, and I'm curious to, you know, how, how you felt about this and how popular it was, but our uh, ortho evidence's coronavirus resource center is, has had more views and more visits than the whole site in the history of the site. Like that's how aggressively people were trying to consume information. One is because it was open access and, and I believe that JBJS was equally open access. Correct, that's correct. But everyone's consuming information and I have to believe that, you know, uh, at least in orthopedics, our members were looking around and our surgeons were looking around saying, okay, where do we, who do we trust? So I think they were going to trusted sites. I'm curious what happened with, with, with your, uh, you know, just with what happened with you believe is the uptake um, of the work that JBGS has been doing. But I can tell you that there was a sense of people saying in times of real crisis, we're going to start focusing on the people we trust and we're going to start looking at data we trust. And, you know, that's where they're going to be. You know, there's this intermix between trying to get rid of that noise. Right. I think what you identified with the higher impact uh, broad medical journals, we really didn't allow to happen. We, we never published anything other than uh, cohort studies uh, and some summary articles like, like yours, uh, which yeah. were basic, you know, systematic reviews. Yeah, right. So we didn't go into the opinion stuff or editorial stuff because we really don't have experts that are orthopedic surgeons. Uh, on the matter. So I think that was the purview of New England Journal who did, you know, there, it's still going on to some degree that there's one to two per issue uh, editorial opinion about uh, right. things. And I, I think that's their role and not ours in orthopedics. And we, we interpreted as we wanted to provide our readership with some basic information on topics that I addressed before that might be helpful to them and then stop the smaller series and really hope to publish better experimental designs that will give them information to help uh, in this pan continued pandemic. Uh, you didn't mention the impact of preprints. Uh, that may be right. a, a topic that uh, our should, listeners are, are yeah. unfamiliar with. But. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, so I won't get into, I mean, that's another 20 minutes for sure for us, yeah. right? So, but I would say that we should definitely touch base on preprints as a general process. The one thing, I mean, and this, this is what I think has been really important about this, I'll use crisis in general, but I think it really was and has continued to have been a global crisis and that we've all been aligned at the same time. You know, I can't remember the last time in history where everyone felt the same way at the same time. But, but when you need information, and you were desperately looking for information and you need it rapidly, you know, even the, as fast as the journals were, they still weren't as fast as I can press submit and it's online immediately. So we were seeing preprint servers and then going to journals thereafter. And there was this process. I think, and I think the future is going to have to be, and by the way, for, for, for listeners and viewers, the preprint basically means is that it's not really peer reviewed. So what you're doing is if you believe you have important information, you're just putting it out there immediately to have, you know, so the peer review becomes once it's actually online and people can debate and discuss it. And then you can then subsequently or not subsequently, you know, submit it for formal peer review in a more what would be considered a traditional journal style format. There are great advances and great challenges, right? Um, you, you never want to have any one body controlling who gets what knowledge. So this puts knowledge in the hands of the people, but also just as we've seen as the explosion of uh, social media, um, you know, that can also be very dangerous, right? And, and so what we were seeing on the worldwide web, so to speak, is really, really um, 
you know, this is a signal that we have to really think about how we're going to evaluate uh, information and publish. I still think, though, that high-quality journals and, and peer review remain the standard and will have to always be that way. And you'll have to be sort of the guardian of, you know, the best evidence yeah. going forward. But, you know, it, it is a huge, huge uh, challenge. And, you know, it's interesting. Lancet's editorial group came out somewhere in April or May saying, you know, maybe even editors, journals, publishers have to be a bit careful because we were so excited about getting topics out so quickly that we need to slow down. And I thought that was a, you know, I thought that was a very thoughtful response from a journal that, you know, probably in many ways looks back and says, maybe we were also pushing so quickly because they had some very big retractions come out of New England and right. Lancet on very big studies that actually moved the needle and had to be pulled back. Right. You know, it, it, it was kind of a wake up call. Yeah. Well, we definitely have uh, slowed down and are waiting for higher quality experimental design. Um, and the uh, listeners should be assured that uh, OrthoEvidence and JVJS will continue to provide the best evidence we can to our orthopedic community for patient care. So um, thanks for the listeners uh, who have tuned in for the first edition of the M&M uh, Mo and Mark uh, show. And we'll be back at you at some point uh, with uh, other interesting topics or topics of interest that are in our publications uh, currently. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.